You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello, welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. Today is the 26th of October, 2016. My name is Edna Bonhomme, and I'm also joined by my co-host, Sam Dolby. And today we're interviewing Sarah Hobriel um, from Columbia University, who's a postdoctoral fellow at um, the History Department. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, thank you for having me. Before we begin asking you some questions, we would love to hear you talk a little bit about your current research and project. Sure. Um, so right now I am working on a book that was based on my dissertation that I completed in 2014 at McGill University uh, in the history department there. My dissertation was titled Le Fique Francisé, Colonial Law and the Muslim Family in Algeria, 1870 to 1930. And so the book that I'm working on right now is looking at the period in colonial Algeria from 1870 to 1930 when the remaining uh, Islamic law courts, the Sharia law courts that had been drastically reduced up until that point were absorbed into a French legal system, a French-style judicial uh, structure. So what signals the beginning of that uh, transition that that I'm looking at is, first of all, uh, the transition in Algeria from, in the, particularly the northern territories, Atel, from a military to a civilian colonial government. And then what the reason that I sort of book, bookend it at 1930 at the end is that uh, this is the colonial centenary that is the 100-year anniversary of the initial uh, French expedition to Algiers. Around 1930, there was this kind of resurgence of energy around uh, colonial reform of, of Islamic law. So there's this period, this 60-year period, in which we see this, uh, the unfolding of this process, this unprecedented process of colonial intervention and colonial governance around Islamic law and the Muslim family that signals this radical reshaping of the legal culture around what comes to be by this time designated as the sort of uh, disputes, the sort of issues that fall under the category of, of family law. So things to do with marriage, divorce, child custody, inheritance, and so on. So it seems like you're identifying a tension between universality and uh, particularity, uh, between universality and difference. How is that at work in the legal structures of French Algeria? Precisely. So that is actually one of the more productive tensions, more important tensions, underpinning uh, the management uh, of the of the Islamic legals of the Islam of the Islamic courts uh, and the entire system and structure of colonial law around the Muslim family at this time. Your research focuses a lot on uh, the tension between uh, French legal systems and French governance and um, the indigenous and particularly uh, uh, Islamic legal structure that was in place. Um, 
I want to know how that changed over time, and particularly, what would it have been like, for example, for a Muslim woman to get divorced in 1820 versus uh, around 1848 when the formal annexation took place to the 1870s? Can you walk us through that process and how uh, legal practices changed over time? I think maybe the best way to answer this question is to kind of actually start with my period, and then I can point back, I can track back to give those explanations some kind of meaning by pointing to how they how they differed from what had been the case before, or what we, at least as far as we can tell, what had been the case before. If you were a Muslim woman, if you were an Algerian woman in 18, say, 85, uh, when the system actually kind of reaches its uh, sort of final state after so many phases of colonial experimentation around the management of, of colonial legal pluralism, uh, let's say you had a dispute you wanted to get a divorce or you, were, you wanted to get custody of your children after a divorce or something like that. Because this dispute technically fell under uh, Islamic law as it was by this point defined, that is, it, it was a dispute having to do with the so-called domestic sphere, you begin with the going to, to the Qadi court and have your dispute adjudicated in that forum. And it would be adjudicated according to Islamic law of the Maliki Madhab, the Maliki school, which is the dominant school in, in the Maghreb in North Africa. Let's say you didn't like the outcome of that round of adjudication. Your next course of action would be to go to the, to the French magistrates. So by this point, uh, particularly after there's several, as I mentioned, several phases of what is called reorganization of the Qadi court system. But by 1886, the final and kind of most concrete uh, phase of this was completed, and Qadi courts were all essentially subsidiary courts, uh, had been made uh, kind of a subsidiary plank to the French magistrate courts. And by this point, the French magistrates, you know, their duties, their jurisdiction and, you know, competence is, again, very much in flux uh, for, you know, even as early as 1840s and 50s going forward. But by this time, uh, and especially after 1889, they are charged with hearing Muslim appeals, the first appeal, and applying Islamic law insofar as they were trained. So they would have received their training at the Algiers Law School, which was founded in 1880, and would have had to have you know some basic kind of training in Arabic. This was not necessarily, I mean, most of these magistrates you know, they differed from their French, say, like metropolitan counterparts in that they had quite a bit more power, quite a bit more oversight. Uh, and insofar as their training Islamic law, they were also generally, as a sort of juristic class, kind of hostile to, to, um, to that training. But, you know, this was their mandate. But then after 1889, a decree is passed that also gives, uh, that gave Muslim litigants the option of uh, having French common law applied to their to their cases. So what this means is, and so this is like quite a convoluted, you might almost say uh, chaotic system, uh, hilariously enough, because it was, you know, the, the rationale behind all of these reforms was to make the, the system more so, you know, supposedly predictable to, to rationalize um, what was seen as the kind of, as the uh, chaos of uh, the pre-existing Islamic legal system. So the next phase of any dispute at this point, after being heard at the, after filing an appeal to the magistrate court, there's a possibility for appeal at a third and final level. And here again, 
there is um, there's this tension. There there is a lack of clarity about what kind of law is supposed to be applied to to any particular case because at the discretion of the uh, attorney general, appeals that are filed at this level, at this second level of the magistrate court, can be uh, then turned over to this third le- level of appeal, which is the Chambre de Révision Musulmane. And at that third level, this was a council of Muslim and French uh, jurists, officials, who were charged with, again, overseeing rulings and ensuring that uh, litigants, that cases, similar kinds of cases, reached similar kinds of outcomes. That is, again, to build like predictability and to, supposedly to build predictability into the system. But again, they were meant to apply Islamic law, but also avoid contravening French principles. So here again, I, I really emphasize the term colonial legal pluralism in the sense coined by Lauren Benton to mean, you know, not simply a kind of forum shopping or sort of a plurality of, of venues to which litigants could have their cases heard, but actually a kind of pluralism that rather projects uh, the sovereignty and authority of, this, of the colonial state. I noticed a phrase that came up in your article in JMU's was imposed legal pluralism, and I thought that was nice in that it captured the fact that you know, this isn't always about flexibility and good things happening, even though it allows for some ways for people to get what they want. But, but there are still structures of power here, right? Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. So divorce figures as an important uh, legal dispute in uh, one of the papers that you publish, and particularly it intersects with issues around medicine, um, uh, sexuality, as well as um, the kind of tensions between the French court system and the Islamic court system. And I wanted to know um, how that changed over time in from the 1830s and the early colonial period to the um, 1870s uh, in when French um, imperialism in Algeria was more entrenched. Right. So, yeah, so divorce is a really important kind of dispute. In the archives that I am working with, it's one of the most important kinds of uh, disputes that come up alongside disputes over like uh, post-marital alimony uh, disputes uh, that tend to encompass as well uh, child custody disputes. And then also, of course, inheritance disputes. I mean, inheritance disputes are, are really the most, uh, the most prevalent. But divorce is quite important. And divorce is interesting because something that really fascinated me about, fascinated me about these cases and what really drew me to zoning in particularly on divorce is the way in which it brought Muslim Algerian women into a kind of particular gendered proximity to the colonial state by virtue of the fact that women were required to seek judicial annulments. Um, so they had to have their divorces pronounced by a qadi um, based on complaints that they had brought about their husband having uh, failed to adhere to any of the terms of the marital contract, as opposed to the extrajudicial divorce or talaq that, that uh, men had, had the option of, of, of using. 
So for women, there was this importance that actually signifies a kind of continuity from the pre-colonial to the colonial period. Their ability to go to a Qadi court was, uh, remained important, right? Despite these changes, these really dr- quite dramatic, like, tectonic changes in the, in the legal system. And not just the structural changes, but also all kinds of things uh, that people like Alan Crislow have, have written about, about the changes to the training of Qadis and, and, uh, and so forth. Nonetheless, again, it was important for women to be able to, to have that venue, um, to have that site of dispute resolution available to them. So the kinds of divorce, there's, there's various kinds of, uh, of women's divorces that, that appear in these records. So these include divorce based on, uh, on harm, uh, harm and neglect, so it could be that, you know, the husband failed to provide for his, for his wife and family, you know, going all the way to, you know, violent abuse. Divorce based on impotence, like failed consummation of the marriage, uh, or failure to consummate the marriage. Uh, divorce based on, again, the, the contrary um, of, of violent or at least premature consummation of the marriage. Um, so that is uh, consummation of the marriage uh, at the stage of betrothal rather than um, waiting for the final, the, the full officiation of, of the wedding, and so on. So these are the kinds of, of reasons that women came to courts demanding a divorce or very often coming to court and, and complaining that uh, either their husband had divorced them, had wrongfully divorced them, or disputing their husband's claim that they had sought, a, that the women had sought a judicial divorce, a divorce, right? So this is a kind of woman's divorce that placed the onus on her side to, to release herself from the marriage by compensating him you know, financially, usually part of the dower. So there was a lot of disputes around this too, that basically they would go in and say, well, I had, you know, we had agreed to this kind of divorce, and therefore she owes me all this money. And then she would say, well, in fact, he divorced me. He used the triple divorce, um, so-called triple divorce on me. And uh, therefore, he actually, he owes me <laughs> something, right? So there was those kinds of, those were the terms that brought uh, Algerian women and uh, couples, former couples, into these, um, into these settings to have their, their, disputes, their disputes heard. So how do these legal changes imposed by the French affect these strategies for acquiring divorce? Or avoiding it. One of the really interesting changes that I try to trace in terms of that question, in terms of what actually changes uh, through the process of uh, increased kind of French intervention, French involvement, uh, and codification and, uh, of laws, rationalization of law, is the question of divorce based on harm. So in the Maliki school, there is a uh, exit strategy essentially for women, um, for women trying to escape uh, an abusive marriage, uh, which is known by various terms, dar al-amin, dar al-ad. So one of the changes that I trace is actually what happens to that exit strategy for women. Um, that basically is a principle that allows women to 
to essentially seek arbitration from uh, a trusted neighbor, a trusted uh, member of the community, to basically bear witness to her abuse. Usually uh, in the period that I'm looking at, I mean, this, this really varied, uh, you know, by, by time and place and context, but uh, in a lot of the cases that I'm looking at, uh, especially in, in the earlier years of the, of the period that I'm looking at, um, would involve uh, having the couple move in to uh, move in with with a trusted neighbor that they both someone on, an arbitrator uh, arbitrator on whom they both agreed, um, and then that person would would come back a month later or so and report to the court that uh, you know who essentially was at fault. Basically, not only did they have to attest to the fact that uh, the wife was was being abused by her husband, but also that she had that it was undeserved that she wasn't, you know, somehow bringing this on herself, and that also it was excessive that his his violence was excessive uh, or disproportionate, right? So what some scholars have found, what other scholars like Dalen Dalagesh for Egypt, um, Kenneth Kuno have have found is that this exit strategy, this gendered exit strategy that was had been available to uh, to Muslim women begins to undergo this mutation, this change over the course of the late 19th, early 20th century, right? They don't tend to connect it too much to the French presence. Kenneth Kuno, especially in his last book, a little bit more. And so what I'm trying to do is actually, in recovering the career of, of this principle um, in Algeria, is actually try to fill in these blanks, like actually construct a clearer timeline of, of how this principle undergoes these changes. So some of the ways that I'm trying to understand this is to do this kind of double reading of both the cases, like looking at cases in sequence and seeing how their adjudication, especially an appeal, is changing. A lot of women through the course of the 1890s into the right through into the 1920s, their um, initial divorces based on arbitration that are granted them by Cadiz through this process, increasingly their husbands are appealing those decisions to French magistrate courts and having their and having these decisions overturned. So they're you know they're not they're not like trying to stay with their wives. They're just you know trying to get out of having to pay <laughs> what they would have to pay if they were found to be at fault for the for the, the cause of the marital uh, rupture. So I'm looking at how this is working out in the courts themselves, and then trying to read this alongside the broader changes. So some of the most important changes being, first of all, this massive codification project in Algeria that uh, takes 10 years. It was led by the doyen of the Algiers Law School, Marcel Marin, who uh, is uh, commissioned to write this uh, enormous code of Maliki law for for Algeria based on that is structured along the same lines as the Napoleonic Code. And so this is a massive project of, of translation, you know, part of the policy of the translation is also making uh, legible to a French, uh, within a French frame of reference, all of these existing Islamic legal principles. So what I'm looking at is, you know, through that process of codification and other uh, later changes as well, things like law, a law in 1924 that comes comes to Algeria directly from France that actually criminalizes family desertion. You know, so looking at those developments, looking at how it is that uh, uh, increasingly French ideas around marital uh, authority, the idea of the sanctity of uh, the sanctity of the domestic sphere, 
as as falling within the uh, the authority, the patriarchal authority of a husband. Uh, the idea of, of wifely obedience that Kuno also looks at. Um, how all of these things um, actually make their way into the adjudication of these cases through processes of translation and codification. This this has some similarities with Kuno's work because something he's interested in is how it is that Egyptian women are uh, increasingly uh, losing in these cases because the idea of neshiza, like that they're they're being accused of being of being disobedient, and he traces this this to uh, the Napoleonic code, the, the uh, spread of these Napoleonic ideas in, into Egypt. But again, I feel like a key, like a missing link in this is Algeria. And to the point that even to this day, if you pick up a copy of the Algerian Family Code of 1984, that was, uh, you know, somewhat reformed in, uh, 20 years later, but, um, uh, but still maintains the language of, uh, on the French side, you know, because it comes in both French and Arabic, on the French side, the clauses about wifely disobedience are still translated, you know, still bear the mark of these histories that, you know, that there are still um, laws around neshiza and, and uh, the restriction of women's um, uh, divorce rights because of that. قلب لاشتاه ولهذا المجال مازال حي مازال ما نسمح شيل ويصير عليها القتال so as the legal landscape is changing, so too is the scientific, so too is the medical landscape. And one aspect of that is how colonial medicine is starting to eclipse indigenous medicine. And and part of this uh, as you nicely detail in your article, are campaigns against the Kabila or the midwife. Um, and they became rather vicious. And I wondered if you'd be willing to read a passage from your article that nicely expresses this point. Um, it begins by summarizing the argument of a French doctor named Adolphe Cocher, who wrote a manual in 1884 on forensic medicine in Algeria. Okay, yeah, I'd be happy to. The full brunt of Cochet's disdain, however, was reserved for his rivals in expertise, the odious matrons or women healers. Indeed, the Kabla, as Cochet imagined her, figured as an extension of racially endemic sexual delinquency. She was complicit in every crime. She sold abortifacients, quote, in plain view on the streets of Algiers, supplied advice and poisons by which cunning wives dispatched their unknowing husbands and helped women commit infanticide to hide illicit pregnancies. The Kabla's reproductive, contraceptive, and abortive expertise was indeed so renowned that even European women were known to seek their services. Men and women, French medical professionals, in turn tried to suppress Kabla activities by any means, including accusing them of medical malpractice, abortion, and infanticide in colonial courts. Indeed, at least one woman healer was fined for assisting in an abortion. Kablas were also accused of helping to concoct the great deception of the sleeping baby, or al-Rakid, doctrine in Islamic law, which allowed a woman to claim that a 
dormant pregnancy lasting up to five years was the product of her union with a past or missing husband. This scientific uh, absurdity, in quotation marks, which European doctors worked tirelessly to eradicate, allowed Muslim women to claim paternity and, and inheritance rights, and thus social security for themselves and their children. I especially like the part about how one of the problems is that European women are, are seeking their, their help. <laughs> it, it sort of... <laughs> Yeah. Well, they were having enough trouble just, you know, they were trying to get, uh, you know, so-called native, like native, they were trying to get Muslim women to, to use their services. But imagine also then finding that they're losing their own, you the know, horror, their own the clients that they had taken for granted. So your, um, your journal article very much outlines the, uh, the tensions between the colonial, French colonial um, authorities and traditional Muslim healers and midwives. How was this um, impacted or uh, how did this influence the legal structures and how the uh, French colonial government imposed uh, legal restrictions and or uh, policies around um, medicine, healers? um. So, yeah, so especially as I was looking into um, another another set of cases that I mentioned earlier, particularly the um, failed or forced consummation cases, I came to see that it was as important to look at uh, developments on the medical side um, and, and processes on the medical side as much as on the legal side. That it became clear to me that the importation of medical expertise uh, and medical knowledge, uh, biomedical European epistemologies, was the cause of important changes to how Algerian women were. Um, having their cases, we're bringing, we're bringing their arguments, we're litigating their cases. And what I mean by that is that women were coming to courts with, uh, with uh, medical certificates, your medical certificates from European um, uh, medical personnel, right? So colonial, colonial medicine yeah. is becoming an arbiter of truth in the courtroom? Exactly. Insofar as all of this restructuring that we've been talking about does establish exactly like new hierarchies of truth um, and I, new ideas of competent litigation. Medical expertise was also was also affecting this. And beforehand, with the Kabila, would they have been involved in legal proceedings as well? Yes. So we don't know too much about it. From what we do know, uh, indeed, Kabilas, and this seems to be. Uh, this has been supported by evidence elsewhere in the region in North Africa and, and in um, the Middle East. Kablas had the same kind of authority as uh, men in the courtroom because of gender divisions of labor and demands of modesty and so on. They, uh, their testimony had equal weight to that of a man. Right. So in the colonial period, with these changes that we began to discuss, uh, this gets upset. Um, particularly by so outside of the outside of the legal domain, um, you know, strictly speaking, in this kind of face-off between this this uh, rivalry between uh, colonial medical personnel, incoming doctors uh, and nurses and 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 midwives, there is generally uh, this attempt at supplanting kablas as as practitioners, uh, medical practitioners, as healers in their communities. And then in the courtroom, this is one of the kind of front lines of this, you know, an assault on, on existing uh, medical practices, um, that kablas are 
supplanted as, as experts, as expert witnesses, uh, first in, in terms of in the criminal sphere, because that is one of the first places where, uh, in any case, Islamic law is completely uh, replaced by, uh, by French law. Um, so you see, starting in the 1850s, French doctors uh, uh, being brought in to give testimony for and give certified exams, certified reports for um, rape cases and, and such cases falling more under criminal law. And then finally, by the 1870s, you see this same uh, process uh, unfolding in, again, what the domain at this point of family law, of, of what remains under Islamic legal uh, jurisdiction. So what's interesting is that uh, it becomes so vital for Algerian women, even going to the Qadi court, to go with a French medical certificate based on jurisprudence, you know, emerging jurisprudence at this, at this point, um, so, and also decrees and uh, colonial decrees that are increasingly etching away at the authority of, of Kablas and, and lo- other uh, local medical practitioners, uh, I should say local healing practitioners, um, and in their place and replacing that with, with colonial expertise. Um, so would it be fair to say that even as there's a kind of legal pluralism, there's not that kind of, there's not a kind of medical pluralism, at least in the eyes of the state? Yeah, that's, I would say that that's... Or that there shouldn't be. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair to say. Although what's interesting, one of the things that's really interesting about this is that nonetheless... What I think that this in some ways also shows is uh, something that can be a little bit overlooked when writing these kinds of like colonial histories, trying to understand life under colonial rule or in a colonial state, um, is that, uh, so, to, so let me start by giving rather an example, is that, as I mentioned, uh, you know, w- w- these women are going into Qadi courts with a certified exam from a French Sage uh, femme from a from a midwife, but uh, that report is then being taken by the Qadi, and he is then you know when he has to go and sort of deliberate and and determine its admissibility. Um, at least if he's a good Qadi, if he's not <laughs> if he's trying to really do his job, is actually then also uh, incorporating this uh, this kind of artifact of modernity of modern medicine into. Uh, his adjudication according to what is it you know what is admissible um, uh, testimony in uh, in the Maliki school. So you just mentioned that the Qadis were um, using the uh, information from French authorities and particularly French medical authorities. And I, I wanted to know, given that you're looking at materials that are both in French and in Arabic, what is the role of the archives, and particularly both the colonial archives as well as the indigenous archives, have um, in the Algerian ones, and, and, and allowing you to have a narrative that pro- talks about these pluralisms, whether it's the legal pluralisms, medical ones, the issues and questions around gender, and who's who's testifying. Um, can you speak a bit about the archives and and the the, the method that you use to extract these stories? Uh, so the archives that I use are judicial archives of what had been what was formerly the arrondissement of Blida, so which is this, this jurisdiction that encompassed uh, many villages and, and towns in the Tel, but then also actually 
um, uh, encompassed a number of Qadi courts further south, quite far south. So it's an interesting, you know, it, it gives this very interesting kind of cross-section geographically. And then also exactly as you say, there, there is this question of, uh, of, of what role translation plays in these, in these courts. Because the, the, these judicial records, in fact, they are actually appeal records. The reason that they exist is because they were, um, they were, they were appealed. There was a, an appeal deposed with the magistrate court at Blida, right? Um, that was um, by uh, a litigant who had had their case initially heard in, a, in one of Blida's subsidiary Cadi cor- courts, right? What these files contain is uh, the original ruling in Arabic. The, uh, there was often, not always, but often uh, is accompanied by a French translation, which is either commissioned by the appellant or can be, uh, sometimes it was done um, by the court itself at a later stage for the benefit of the French magistrate of the appeal court. And those would be the kinds of two, so the one and very often the two kinds of basic components of these records, and then anything else that the litigant thought might help bolster their case. Very often, the appeal was filed by hired European legal counsel. So it was a European lawyer who was helping uh, their Muslim litigant navigate this, as I mentioned, kind of chaotic and uh, ever-changing field, this uh, ever-changing appellate circuit um, and you know, the, again, constant kind of appearance of new reforms and, and so on. And then on top of that, other kinds of materials, things like letters, handwritten letters by the litigants themselves directly to the magistrate. And those are also, you know, quite interesting just in terms of what they tell us about the extent to which these litigants were quite aware of a lot of colonial gender politics women writing about, you know, how they know that the French Republic is, you know, is so kind to us Muslim women and, uh, <laughs> you know, you're going to rescue me from this horrible scenario that this indigen has, has put me through and so on. So those are the, those, that's the kind of like in terms of the materiality of the, of the records that I'm, I'm working with. And then, again, the, the issue of, of translation is quite interesting because I work from both the, the Arabic original and the French translation, and I, I don't think of one as a window to or as a, a kind of even, or like a shadow of the other, but rather um, I think of them both as, as texts that actually each in their own way tell us a lot about, um, about this period and, and how people were experiencing it. There's a way in which, um, you're in your last example, um, Algerian women are conscious and aware that the French use a particular kind of rhetoric around... Um, laicite perhaps, uh, women's liberation, and can then repackage it for their own personal use. One could say that that's a form of agency, um, and it's a way that they can be able to exercise their own power within this um, somewhat chaotic, um, uh, diffuse uh, legal system. And so would you describe that as such, or would you use another term to describe um, the political uh, motivations and tensions of Algerian women who are aware and um, uh, incorporating this uh, language. You know, agency is something that I, you know, I think about a lot, of course, right, for this project. 
I suspect it's something that anybody <laughs> working on, I mean, anybody working on uh, on these topics, on these kinds of history, you know, dealing with gender, with law, with colonialism, you know, agency is going to be kind of on the, you know, on the top of your, of your analytic and methodological program, I think. Uh, in my case, sort of exactly as you say, I mean, there's a way in which these questions get kind of hamstrung by gender politics, by colonial and post-colonial gender politics, uh, and particularly the coordinates of a, uh, resistance and complicity. And something that I'm, that I'm trying to do is, is really go a bit beyond this, and not just go beyond this in the sense, say, that Mahmoud proposed of um, going outside of a, you know, kind of liberal or, or liberal emancipatory framework, but also beyond this in terms of the restriction to women's actions as falling under one of two categories of either complicity with a collaboration with the colonial state insofar as these women that I'm studying, for instance, approached the colonial legal system. It might have been via a Qadi court, and it might not have been, but in any case, their needs, their pursuit of their interests um, required them to, in a sense, validate, in a sense, give legitimacy to these colonial forms of, of dispute resolution, these colonial spaces, right, that are products of, of, <laughs> of the exertion of, of a very uh, kind of violent colonial power, right? There's a way in which women, that these actions can be interpreted as, again, kind of like a kind of complicity, or on the other hand, can be interpreted, I think, especially from kind of a, a what you find sometimes in like a French French colonial <laughs> uh, feminist, uh, French feminist slash, you know, what Leila Ahmed would call a kind of colonial feminist perspective, uh, that uh, these women were availing themselves of um, the liberties um, and the opportunities that the presence of, of French law afforded them, right? And so neither of these things is the case. <laughs> and I think... I find that um, there has been, again, this kind of politicization um, of these dynamics that has been unhelpful. So what I think is a more interesting set of questions is, you know, under what category these actions fall, in, you know, into this limiting dualism, but rather, again, to go back to the fact that the system was rife with contradiction and rife with this tension between universalism and particularism, between assimilation and exception and difference, um, how did it sustain itself, right? How did it reproduce itself? And I think that the answer of, you know, colonial violence is, is not a complete answer. That's not kind of, doesn't have sort of an uh, exhaustive explanatory abilities, you know, for us. I think that another part of this answer, a part that hasn't been fully examined and what I want to examine more is the other side, the way in which subjects of, you know, in this case, in, of the colonial state, how their uses of the courts um, and their exercise of a kind of agency in that field not only has this kind of double effect of uh, both uh, affecting changes from below, of actually through their appeals um, generating colonial law because their appeals were an important source of colonial law in the absence of a universal code, right? And also answering to an extent the question, this reproduction of power question, 
that they're approaching and using these spaces of dispute resolution tells us something about how the, the system uh, sustained itself through these contradictions and, and you know, dramatic changes. Well, if our discussion today is any guide, your work will offer some innovative answers to these questions, and we're certainly excited to see them in your book. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thank you so much again. This is a lot of fun. Of course, our website is ottomanhistorypodcat.com. No, it's not ottomanhistorypodcat.com. It's ottomanhistorypodcast.com, and you can find a reading list there. You can also leave questions or comments. You can also follow us on Facebook. Not on Snapchat, though. We're not there yet. Thanks for joining us on the Ottoman History Podcast. Until next time, take care.